Welcome back to the Highway to Health Podcast. And thanks for connecting with us again on Pod Wheels, powered by Radio Nemo. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be joined by Dr. Jed Gorlin, who is the co-director of Transfusion Medicine and Vice President of Medical and Quality Affairs for Innovative Blood Resources, which is located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Now, folks, January is National Blood Donor Month, and Dr. Gorlin will be talking to us about the importance of regular blood donations as well as the shelf life of donated blood. Dave Nemo will be your host for this edition of the Highway to Health podcast. And now let's hand it off to Dave for his feature interview with Dr. Jed Gorlin. Doctor, good morning and welcome. And if you don't mind, we're going to kind of zero in on your chief medical officer hat here this morning because you wear many hats and it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you very much. We were talking about everything from chicken guya to snow skiing and water skiing being invented in Minnesota. You do both, but you also do cross country. In terms of cross country and downhill skiing on snow, are those completely different skis? They are. Cross country skis only have the binding at the toe. And I would like to point out that our own Minnesotan Jesse Diggins just won the Tour to Ski, an international race, a combination of seven races. So we are incredibly proud of her. But in her home state, she wouldn't be able to ski until this week because there basically was no snow. So global warming has reached all the way up to tippy top. Boy, yeah, and you can say that again, but don't. (laughs) We're not here to talk about skiing, although it's fascinating to me. I've been water skiing once. It was not pretty. I've never been snow skiing, so that's about the extent of my winter sports activities, I guess you might say. Well, if you follow I-35 up to the top, that's where we are. I got you. I got you. Well, the Association for the Advancement of Blood and Biotherapies, the AABB, I think is the organization that has designated January as National Blood Donor Month here in the United States. They say that due to holiday celebrations and climate weather, we just talked about that, cold and flu season, the winter months often are a time of reduced donations, but at the same time an increased risk for blood shortages. So National Blood Donor Month celebrates blood donors during this critical time and reminds people of the importance of donating blood. I don't think we need to really zero in on that so much, Dr. Gorland, because I think our drivers out there see so much and they get involved in so much. We have so many drivers out there who are EMTs in their own right, volunteer fire people. Also, law enforcement, a lot of ex-law enforcement folks out there on the road. So I think trucking is pretty keyed into what you guys are doing. Well, thank you. And I'm really very appreciative of what they do. We are actually one of the larger suppliers of air ambulances. So even if you have a truck accident in uh, very rural areas, we have systems across the United States to fly you from the scene of the accident to the nearest trauma center. And increasingly, those helicopters or even jets are equipped with very special blood So it's important that we have the blood donated in advance in the ready for those events because donating after an event, it takes a couple of days to do all the testing and preparation. So we need to have people donate all the time regularly, and that way we'll always be prepared. It's like the Boy Scouts. 
Indeed, indeed. I have one of those counterintuitive questions for you, but I also kind of switched gears a little bit because I mentioned the association who basically designated the month as National Blood Donor Month. But you are the chief medical officer of America's Blood Centers. A couple of years ago, oil was cheaper than the storage facility. In other words, it cost you more to store oil than the oil was worth, and it was a weird thing. This is the counterintuitive question. Obviously, we know the consequences, I think, to some degree, at least us laymen, of not having enough in the blood bank. Do you ever have too much? Does it go bad after a while or something like that? Absolutely. The outdate of blood products is relatively short. Plasma can be frozen. It can be stored a year. Uh, Red cells last up to 42 days, but platelets only last five to seven days, depending upon the special way they're stored. Whoever thought of putting Christmas and New Year's one week apart, that makes it a very challenging time to do blood collection. So the ABB is all blood, so blood collection and transfusion, so the hospitals are well represented. America's Blood Centers is just about blood collection organizations. We collect it and then get it to the hospitals that transfuse it. Wow. Okay. And we're going to take a call here from Jared up in Oregon in just a moment, Dr. Gorlin. But what are the different types of blood? A, B, B positive, O. What are those? Yeah. So Carl Landsteiner got the Nobel Prize back in 1906 for discovering the major blood groups. And those are A, B, O, and the combination of both A and B called AB. And then there's a positive and negative, the rhesus factor or D antigen. And about one-seventh of the U.S. population is negative for that. That's mostly relevant when you're female having babies. If you RH negative and get a baby who's RH positive, you can make antibodies that cross the placenta and cause the baby problems and anemia. So we have methods to prevent that, which have only been around for the last 50 years or so. There's actually an incredible alphabet soup of other thingy-dingies called antigens on red cells. And those become most relevant when people need multiple transfusions. So it's very important that we have a donor base that reflects the patient base, i.e. ethnic diversity, so that we can match all those special little antigens if and when people make things called antibodies. Wow, yes. Donor base needs to match the patient base. Another couple of those dots that us laymen don't really immediately put together, right? The basis of logic right there, for sure. Let's take Jared's call here. He's up in Oregon. Jared, you're on with Dr. Jed Gorlin, and good morning. Good morning. Doctor, me and my father, who is now passed, we are RHN or RH null. They call it golden blood. All I know is I'm required to do mapping, and I have to report quarterly at my location. I checked a couple of years ago. I believe there's 58 people now. I don't know if that is correct or not. I have no allergens or whatever it's called in my blood. Have you ever heard of that? Um, true RH, no. If you have no D, C, or E is a very, very rare condition. But in true RH, no, your red cells don't last very long. So we could talk offline, but that is quite unusual, and it does mean that it's a challenge for you to receive blood. We couldn't transfuse your blood if it's truly RH null. I believe that's why I have to do mapping. That's what the clinic calls it. They require me to notify them my location, and also they take three to four vials on the quarter. I report to a clinic wherever my location is. They send me to a clinic. 
and they take these vials of blood from me. Now, I knew I had rare blood, but I wasn't sure. As I said, I haven't read the whole history of it about giving blood or receiving blood, and I'm pretty sure that's why I have to do the mapping bees. It is so rare, so they know where I am, I guess. So if you really have rare blood where you cannot receive other folks' blood, did they freeze any red cells away for you in case you need them? That's that, why that, they that, take the vials. A vial isn't going to do it. They would need to take a full oh. pint. Yeah, so you may want to just talk to your hematologist about should you be storing away autologous blood, which is storing away your own blood in case of an emergency. Not every rare blood needs that, but some do. So it's at least a question worth asking ahead of time. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you. Jared, thank you. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to the Highway Health Podcast on Podwheels, powered by Radio Nemo. If you would like to stay up to date on what's happening with Radio Nemo, please visit RadioNemo.com. You'll see the latest on the Dave Nemo Show, Dave Nemo Weekends, and the Tim Ridley Show. RadioNemo.com also has a blog section with news and notes from around the trucking industry. That web address is again, RadioNemo.com. Now, folks, if you'd like to go further down the highway to health, we'd like to invite you to listen to the Dave Nemo Show on Sirius XM's Road Dog Trucking Radio Channel 146. The trip down the highway to health on the Dave Nemo Show happens every Tuesday morning from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Now let's get you back to this edition of the Highway to Health Podcast on Podwheels, powered by Radio Nemo. It's interesting that January was picked for National Blood Donor Month because of the holidays and the stress and the downward trending for donations at this time. But at the same time, we have upward trends in getting sick, for one thing, and also getting vaccines. I mean, I have never heard of RSV until, like, now. So all of the vaccines that we're taking, all of the medications that we're taking, how much of a problem is that for donating blood? And I guess that leads me to a question that I'll just go ahead and ask right now. Uh, Dr. Gorlin, you kind of mentioned, well, it takes a couple of days. Once you donate blood, you walk out of that trailer, and then it takes a couple of days for that blood to go through the process. What happens to that blood after I leave the trailer? Each and every unit is tested every time. Before it's tested, we ask a whole bunch of questions to try to diminish the chance of even collecting a unit that might contain an infection like hepatitis or the AIDS virus. But after you make it through, we actually test for hepatitis B in three different ways, hepatitis C in two different ways, HIV in two different ways, weird infections like HTLV, West Nile virus. And by doing all that screening, we make the United States have one of the safest blood supplies in the world. All that testing takes several days. So it's only typically by day two or three that that blood is ready to distribute. We then get it to the hospitals and that little thing in Minnesota that sticks up into Canada, we send blood all the way up to International Falls, which is right near that little pointy thing. If it's not needed at International Falls, hospital will bring it down to Duluth. So we help our hospitals move blood around because each donation is a precious gift and we don't want to waste any of it. But what we need is really regular donations. Uh, We do very well with high schools. So actually in the fall and spring, rarely have significant gaps in inventory. But it's especially around holidays, Christmas, New Year's, and then summer months when we don't have those high school drives. So Memorial Day, Labor Day, things get really challenging. Let me just ask you quickly, though, 
Is it true that International Falls was the inspiration for Frostbite Falls on Rocky and Bullwinkle? Is that true? You know, I have no idea, but why not? I loved that show growing up. Yeah, I was told that years later, that when I got into trucking radio and I found out that there wasn't International Falls, someone says, yeah, that's where they got the idea for Frostbite Falls on Rocky and Bullwinkle. Okay, well, I asked my counterintuitive question earlier, so here's Dave's dumb question of the day, Dr. Gorland. You're doing a questionnaire-type screening, and then you go in and actually test that blood and screen for all of these diseases and problems. So there's no filtering out of a virus, AIDS or something. There's no filtering out and cleaning up this blood. Well, that's actually a technically fascinating question. Increasingly, there are new technologies called pathogen reduction or pathogen inactivation. And right now there's a technique available for plasma and platelets, but not red cells. And there are about 10 times as many red cells transfused as platelets. So only when there's a tool for pathogen inactivation of platelets could we get rid of some of that testing. That pathogen inactivation is quite effective but it does have a significant additional cost. So while some hospitals have started to adopt pathogen-reduced products, frankly, it's still a minority of units transfused across the United States that undergo the special cleaning. It's basically super soap. Wow, okay. I've got another question for you. Truck drivers and radio announcers kind of have a thing in common. We spend a lot of time in closed, confined spaces alone, so we think a lot. When you cut yourself or when you give blood, it looks like a liquid. Is the liquid portion of blood water and only water, and the blood part of blood is a solid? So there's no such thing as a dumb question. There are such things as dumb answers, and I've got plenty of those. Blood is about 98% water. And if you take a tube of blood and either let it settle or put it in the centrifuge and spin it, you see the top layer is sort of yellow, cloudy yellow or clear. And that yellow contains a lot of proteins. Those proteins help hold the water in your blood called albumin. Another protein is antibodies that helps fight infections. So there's other proteins called clotting factors that when you cut yourself, they literally seal off the hole. It's like a self-sealing tire. In the red part are little round baggies, and the baggies is a fat, a lipid membrane that contains the hemoglobin, which is the red stuff, and it's the red stuff that carries oxygen so efficiently. So when it goes to your lungs, it grabs the oxygen, and when it goes to your hardworking muscles, it lets go of the oxygen. So it's a pretty amazingly fine-tuned system. You have a wonderful carburetor in your system. Wow. We make those parallels between engines and the human body quite a bit here on Highway to Health. And thanks for doing that. Thanks for doing that. So we give blood. Are there some folks who are not allowed to give blood? Yeah. So, I mean, the questions try to focus on activities or exposures that might put a patient at risk. So I have a lot of missionary friends that go off to Africa to save the world, but there's a lot of malaria over there. So we make them wait a full three months after they return. If you've actually had malaria, then it's a three-year deferral because we want to make sure it's not coming back. If you've had certain infections, if you've had hepatitis B, one of our tests even looks at past exposure. So that would prevent you from donating in the future. Obviously, HIV, the AIDS virus, we can't have you donating. Even though there's better and better treatments for that, we still don't want any transmissions. 
And then if you've used IV drugs or other things that put you at significant risk for transfusion transmitted disease, we would defer you as well. And depending upon the type of exposure would be anything from a three-month deferral to lifetime deferral. We throw some numbers around here, but do you find that there are a lot of people who are in those categories that you just mentioned that still come in or do they just not come in very often? Not at all. First of all, 85% of our donations at my blood center are repeat donors, meaning people that come in again and again and again. If they had any reason to defer them, they wouldn't be coming back, right? So by far the safest blood supply is a repeat donor. And that's one of the reasons why to date we've avoided paying people for donations because you get a higher risk donor population if you pay. Whether or not we'll be able to continue that, who knows? I would say the rate of positive testing at my own blood center is about a half of 1%, so 1 in 200 people, and many of those are false positive tests. We're about out of time here, so let me take this opportunity to, A, thank you very much for being with us. That explanation of what blood is in terms of the water and the little baggies was fascinating. We've heard about red blood cells and platelets. I don't know what a platelet is. Nobody does except you around here. So I would love to have you come back and maybe we we'll just talk about blood itself. Would you like to do that maybe? Sounds like a plan. Man, fantastic. Dr. Jed Gorland, thank you so much. That closes out this edition of the Highway to Health Podcast. We would like to take this opportunity to thank you once again for spending part of your day with us on Pod Wheels, powered by Radio Nemo. Now, folks, you can always find the Highway to Health Podcast through Pod Wheels, powered by Radio Nemo, and let's tell you about a few of the outlets where the podcast is available. You can listen to all of the episodes of the Highway to Health Podcast through our website, or you can subscribe to the podcast through all of the major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. Just go to wherever you get your podcast and search Highway to Health. The Highway to Health Podcast is a production of Podwheels, powered by Radio Nemo.